Dear God, I thank you, um, and I thank you for good weather that has come, and, and the way that just reminds me of your goodness and the way you renew us. Um, I thank you for this last week for a lot of us. I know that this was um, a great week to, to, to know you better and, and to learn more about your kingdom and to get to serve you. Um, Lord, I pray this, that you would help us to carry um, the energy and the fervor and the passion from that week into the rest of this semester. Um, that we would, um, even though it gets so easy to to want to check out mentally and emotionally, that we would engage, um, not just for the sake of grades, but um, for the sake of your kingdom. Let that happen next week. Um, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work on the campus even now, making hearts soft for the gospel, making them ready to hear um, hear about you. May they um, see you and us next week. Uh, may we look for opportunities and may we be bold in, in talking about Jesus. Um, as we open up your word tonight, please speak to us um, by your Holy Spirit and change our lives. I ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hebrews 12. Yeah. There we go. Um, Hebrews 12 is where we're going tonight. Two weeks ago, right before spring break, we did the famous uh, Hall of Faith chapter, it's often called, Hebrews 11, walking through these heroes of the faith found in the Old Testament, and, uh, and it's from there that he kind of moves in, really since kind of towards the end of 10, but, but especially from here on out, this is um, solid, pure exhortation. That is, the writer of Hebrews is not going to spend any more time explaining things. He's not going to spend any more time um, giving exposition or giving um, more knowledge or theology to them. What he's giving them specifically now is exhortation, challenge, and encouragement. That's what we're going to see from here on out in this book. And it starts right here at the beginning of chapter 12. I'm going to get a reader. Kelsey, you are going to be our reader. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse one, go ahead and read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right. So he says, therefore, let us run this race, or yeah, let's run the race. And, and this is a common metaphor for the Christian life in the New Testament. Paul uses it two or three times. It's used here. It's kind of, I think it was some somewhat common imagery back then to use athletic imagery to describe the life. And, and the call is to run the race. Now, there are um, some translations. Actually, the translation you just heard, is that old NIV? Is that the NIV? Um, that's ESV. So ESV does, okay? There are a number of translations that actually um, view this as, as a few different exhortations in here, and you heard it. Um, let us throw off everything that hinders us. Let us run the race. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. So you hear these over and over again. That's actually not the way this is worded in the Greek. There's only one exhortation in this passage, and that is this. Let us run, Okay. Let us run the race is the key exhortation. Those other things that get translated let us are actually means by which we run. So, so let us run is, is the main exhortation. And then he's going to give them the way you run. All right? 
Um, and so I want to read that real quick. Uh, we'll go back through, read verse 1 again, and we'll break down these three different ways that he calls them to run. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. All right. Um, this verse has actually been misread in a couple of different ways. The first way that this verse sometimes gets misread is it says, since we are surrounded by such a great a cloud of witnesses, it's, it's off there, sometimes at least, the cloud of witnesses is misidentified. And that is, um, sometimes they are referenced as unbelievers that are all around us witnessing our lives and paying attention to it. And so what Paul is saying is, because there are so many people watching you, because there's this great cloud, this great mass of people around watching your life as Christian, be sure that you run the race well, you live your Christian life well. And while that's maybe a good encouragement, I don't think that's what he's, in fact, I'm, I know that that's not what he's saying here. Contextually, who is the great cloud of witnesses? The Hall of Hebrews 11. Those heroes described in the faith. He's, what he's doing is he's playing off of that because he talks about these people who held on, who finished strong, who ran well in faith in spite of the fact that many of them never got to even see the reward that was coming, never got to see the, the end goal of their faith while they were on this earth, and yet they pressed on. So he says, therefore, in light of that, in light of the way they lived, in light of all that they've done, let us press on and run the race that well. Now here's the second way that this can get misread, I think, um, is, is that it often gets read as though it's preached as though there's like this great, um, this great uh, eternal uh, stands, a big group of bleachers that are all surrounding us, and all the saints of old are sitting in those bleachers, and they're watching us run the race. And therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, Abraham's watching, and Isaac's watching, and, and the prophets are watching, don't let them down, run the race well. I don't think that that's what he's saying here, actually. The idea is not that they're looking at us, I think, but that we are to look at them. And they're, what, they're not witnessing our life, they're witnessing to God's faithfulness. And so what, so what the writer is saying is look to them because they endured great trial and tribulation in faith and it was worth it for them. Over and over again, he says in Hebrews 11, that they were looking ahead to a land that was, that was greater, that this world was not their home, it wasn't worthy of them, and so they pressed through in faith, and it was worth it. It, it, was, it was worth all of it, because God is faithful. He says, look to them as the witnesses to God's faithfulness, so that it will push you on and push you forward. And here he gets to these two different means. By the way, um, anybody know what the word um, for witness is in the New Testament? The word is, and it wasn't used this way yet, but it's because of passages like Hebrews um, that this starts to get used, Acts 22 describing Stephen and some other passages in the New Testament that the word started taking on a different meaning. The word is martus, that is martyr. So the word is witness, and then in Revelation it talks about a guy who is my faithful witness who was put to death, all right? Um, the idea is, and so over time it became so associated with people who would cling to the truth about Jesus no matter what, even though it cost them their lives, that soon this word witness just became synonymous with someone who would die for their faith. It became synonymous with this idea of being a martyr. 
And so it's, it's because of passages like this that it switches to that. So here he gets to these two means by which we run the race. Um, and there's actually a third one that's coming up soon. But the, the first is this. We throw off everything that hinders, he says. And especially the sin that entangles. Throw off hindrances. That's how we run. Now, I think that it is probably... Uh-oh. Is it H-I-N-D? Bear with me here. Is that right? There you go. Um, so he, I think it's significant that he actually separates out, I think. He, hindrance, uh, he, he separates, throw off everything that hinders us, and then he says, separate from that, and specifically the sin that so easily entangles. Implying, I think, this, that we always know that sin is going to hold us up. Sin is always going to hinder and, and entangle us and keep us from running the race as we ought to. And yet, it seems like he's saying that there are actually other things that aren't sin that could do the same thing. And so this is worth noting in your own life. This is the way uh, Matt Chandler says it, that there are certain things in every one of our lives, and, and they're not even necessarily sinful, they're not even necessarily holy. Sometimes they're completely neutral, and they're dependent on you and who you are. There are certain things in your life that stir your affections for God, and there are certain things in your life that rob your affections for God. And, and, and one of the important things for you as a Christian in growth is being able to know what those things are. Being able to recognize those things that when you do them cause you to love Him more and those things that when you do them cause you to love Him less. Um, I've shared before, I think, um, that for me one of those things is TV. And, and I've just noticed that when I watch a lot of TV, it doesn't even have to be bad. It can be completely neutral stuff on the screen. But when I spend a lot of time in front of a screen, I just find my heart growing more cold towards God. Less likely to hear Him and less likely to care what He has to say. Um, that's not to say TV's wicked. It's just something that i got to be aware of in my own life. And so it's worth noticing that there's sin that we need to throw off, but sometimes we're going to have to throw off neutral things as we run this race and we check with them. The second thing that you do is you run with endurance or with perseverance. The race that the writer is describing is not uh, a sprint. It's not a 100-meter Dash is not a 40-yard dash, it is a marathon that he's talking about. And it's one that's going to take time, and it's one that's going to take effort, and it's one that's going to take perseverance and endurance. This word endure, this idea, will pop up four different times in these first seven verses of the passage. So you know that it's an important one to him. If you're going to run, you're going to need to throw off hindrances, and you're going to need to do that running with endurance, with expectation that it will be difficult. Now we move to the third thing. Read verse 2. Kelsey. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right. Um, the last one is that we look to Jesus. Some translations, and I think that this is fair, say, fix your eyes. That is, move them away from other things. Be intentional about moving things, uh, moving your eyes away from other things, your focus away from those, and fix your eyes on Jesus. This is the final one, and it's the one that gets the most attention from him. It's the one that he'll spend more time explaining, which does seem to make sense because that's, if you think about it, basically what the entire book of Hebrews has been doing, right? Isn't that what the entire book of Hebrews is? Is not just a... Um, 
a uh, lecture on how you need to be stronger, a lecture on how you need to be better, um, a scolding on how you guys need to be in church more, reading your Bible more. What he's done throughout this entire letter is fix their eyes on Jesus. He's brought them back to that, recognizing that that is the greatest, the greatest motivator, the greatest means by which we can run the race faithfully, is having our eyes and our minds and our hearts fixed on Him. He calls Him the author and perfecter of our faith, or the pioneer, or the founder and perfecter of our faith. He does both of these things. Um, not only does he start it, that is, he created the faith. He is the, the beginner of the faith that we all share in, but it says that he also perfected it, which can be taken in a couple different senses, maybe at the same time. One is that he does actually bring our faith to completion. He's the one who makes it whole, that makes it matter. But it could also be stated that he is the perfect example of what faith looks like. Because of what he just says here, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That is, in Gethsemane, you'll remember this moment, in Gethsemane, Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. And what is he asking God? Take this cup from me. Like if there's any way to not do this, to not go through with this, not because crucifixion really hurts, although I'm sure that's there. Um, but because Jesus is about to, for the first time in all eternity, experience separation from the Father. That's going to be painful, um, beyond anything we could imagine. And, and he says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And what he does in that moment is he entrusts himself to God. And, and he, has, he shows what it means to, to trust, and to trust that there is a greater joy in going through the suffering, and going through the difficulty. He says that he endured it um, for the joy that was set before him. And says this, that he scorned the cross, scorned the shame. That word scorn literally means to count as, um, in, or, uh, as, as insignificant. To see something as of little value. So the cross was considered to be the most humiliating and shameful thing that a person could go through in a day and age when honor and shame were everything. The most humiliating thing a person could possibly suffer. Several weeks ago in Sunnybrook I got to talk about um, uh, the Roman official Cicero who said that um, Roman citizens, not only did they not have to go through with crucifixion, they were basically kind of exempt from that, except for in the most extreme cases, but he said they shouldn't even have to talk about it. It's too far below them. And Jesus goes through this humiliating thing, and yet um, what the writer of Hebrews says is he counted that as nothing. Counted that, all the shame that was going to be experienced as insignificant compared with the joy on the other side of that compared with the joy that was coming. And this is one other kind of cool thing. Over and over again, the night before Jesus is crucified, you can connect what he says there to what is said here in Hebrews. Because what he says in Hebrews is that Jesus did it for the joy set before him. What he says to his disciples over and over again in the upper room before he dies is that his desire is that his joy would be in them. And then he even prays this, that his joy would be in them and that their joy would be made complete. So when Jesus suffers the cross and endures that for the joy set before him, the cool thing is he does that and then confers that joy on us. Like he does that not just for his own joy, but, but for our joy, that his joy may be in us, which is a really cool thought. Um, read verses 3 and 4, Kelsey. struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
All right, so now we see more clearly Jesus is always a great example to look to, always perfect to look to, but in this specific situation we see why the writer thinks it works so well here because Jesus is an example of someone who endured opposition from sinful people, who was persecuted by sinful people and endured it for the joy that was coming on the other side, and that is exactly where the Hebrews, the, the, the audience of this letter is right now. That is that they are enduring persecution of their own. Not to the extent that Jesus did. He says, you, you haven't had to spill your blood over this yet. It hasn't gotten to that point of violence, and yet there is persecution they're facing. And he says, in the same way that in the midst of the hardship, Jesus looked and saw that there was joy in staying with this, you can do the same thing. You need to do those things. Fix your eyes on Him. Consider Him. Think about Him. Focus on Him. And here's where our text starts to get um, even more interesting. Read verses 5 through 7, Kelsey. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Okay. Um, so, so here's where, what, what the writer is saying is this. He, he quotes from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 um, here to remind him of this, this fact, that not only um, should they endure hardship because there's joy on the other side of it, but he says this, that actually there ought to be some joy that's brought about because of the hardship, which is, which is counterintuitive. But the hardship that you're experiencing, there ought to be joy you receive from that because he says this, you need to know this, that the hardship you're going through is God's loving discipline in your life. It's the discipline of a father, as he quotes Proverbs 3, to say those things. So, so that in and of itself ought to bring you some joy as you face difficulty, knowing that God is actually working you, that he's at work there. Um, now this raises a couple questions, because what is the hardship that they're going through? We just talked about persecution. The writer of Hebrews has just said that the persecution they're experiencing at the hands of unbelievers is the discipline of God. Now, we would believe, am I right, that, that unbelievers persecuting Christians, that that is sinful behavior, right? So that leads us to a couple interesting questions. Um, the first is this, if persecution is sinful behavior, and if the writer is saying that that persecution is God's handiwork, is His discipline, then, then does that not mean that God is tempting, that God is causing sin to take place? And can He do that? And the second question is this, why is God disciplining them in their faithfulness? Because their discipline is, the, the persecution they're facing is coming because they're staying faithful to Jesus for the moment. If they would just stop being faithful, the persecution goes away, right? And so what he's saying is it's because of your faithfulness, because you're holding to Jesus, God is disciplining you. How does that work? How is the discipline associated with faithfulness rather than walking away? The, the answer to the first question I want to address here, the second, Scott will get to in a little bit. Here's what I think the answer to the first question is. Um, I, I don't believe that God is causing um, the persecution, per se, that He is making it happen. And, and the reason why is because actually, if you flip over even just a couple pages in your Bible, you don't have to right now, but in James 1, it says this, that God cannot tempt, nor does He tempt. So God, God doesn't 
doesn't tempt us towards sin, doesn't have the ability. So I don't believe that God is leading these unbelievers to sin. I do believe this, though, that God is able to orchestrate events in such a way that these hardships, when they take place, that he uses it for the good of his people, that he's able to discipline in them. So he's not making it happen, but he's allowing it to happen, and then he's using it is what I would say to that. Um, you remember this is this is kind of a famous passage, Romans eight twenty eight, that we know this that all things work for the good of those who love him and are called by his name. And what he's saying is that God has this ability to 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 take no matter what, to take anything that happens in the life of a believer and use that for their good. The good he divine, defines in verse twenty nine. You can you can read that later. Um, what he means by the good, but. Um, well, like I said, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that here in just a bit. Um, read verses 8 through 11. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it has seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment of all, disciple, of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right. So, um, here what he does is he uses earthly fathers in our, in our relationship with our earthly dad and his exa- as an example of what he says that God is doing here. He says this, like, discipline is a sign that you belong to that father, that he's yours, that you're a legitimate child. Those who aren't disciplined, he says, that just shows that they're not legitimate, illegitimate. Now, the, the, the ESV and the NIV and everybody else softens that up a little bit. Okay. The old King James Version says it for what it is. Bastards is literally what it says. Um, that's what you are, it says, if, if you're not receiving discipline from the Lord. Discipline is a sign that you belong to Him and that He loves you. He says this, the sign of a good dad is discipline. If they're doing it right, and, and um, discipline, all of us can attest to this, is never pleasant at the time. It's never enjoyable. It's never something you want. But when it's done rightly, it causes us then to look back on that time with a greater love and a greater respect for our Father because we know what He was doing now. He was doing it for our good. That's what He says. Doesn't that sound like Romans 8, 28? He's doing it for our good. This is so key here, okay? Most, my guess is that the the people who are listening to this letter, who are reading this, and they're suffering persecution and they're going through some difficult times and they're wondering if this is all worth it. My guess is that they thought the persecution was a sign of God's indifference towards them. Doesn't doesn't he care? Like, why is he not stepping in and doing something about this? I'm trying to be obedient. I'm trying to do the right thing, but he's not fixing anything about this. And I think that a lot of Christians today believe that same thing, that, that, that when we go through difficulty, when we go through hardship, it's a sign that God is indifferent, that he doesn't really care. And the writer of Hebrews says it's 180 degrees different. It's the exact opposite of that. That when we go through hardship, it's a sign that He loves us and He's at work in our lives. Completely counter to what most people tend to think. He doesn't let us go through it because He doesn't care. He lets us go through it because He's a dad who loves us. Read verses 12 through 13. 
hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it all right. Um, actually, we read. She read a little bit further in, but that's actually probably where we should have. I wish we would have. Uh, um, I have no. I'm not totally sure when I broke this up at the beginning of the year why I broke it off at verse 13. It actually almost flows better into this. So, um, well, you, you'll kind of see in the next couple of weeks how that connects a little bit more. But he quotes here two different passages. Verse 12, if you look at it, is a quote from Isaiah 35, which is a call in the midst of difficulty to God's people to put their hope in God, in the salvation that comes from God, and it calls them to follow Him in holiness, to turn to God's holiness. Verse 13 is a quote from Proverbs 4.26, make level paths for your feet. In wisdom literature, like Proverbs, that idea of making level paths is a fairly common metaphor that comes up for describing walking rightly in the way of God. Walking the way. So he says this, so make, make the path before you the right one. Walk the way that you're supposed to walk. Walk in front of you when he says make the path you're walking. Okay, Make level path for your feet. I think that that is a collective your. So, so when he says, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame, that, that word is actually like dislocated, so bo- bones that are dislocated and out of joint, so that they can be restored, so that you can walk on, so they can be healed. I don't think he's saying to each person in here, make sure that you're doing that in your own life, but he's saying to each person in there, make sure that this is happening for this body of believers in front of you. Make sure that the path is level. Make sure that you strengthen your arms, strengthen your legs, and that is strengthen those around you so that we all move forward in this race, so that we all walk forward together in endurance. Let me summarize in a couple different movements what he said to us in these first 13 verses of chapter 12. He says this, In light of the cloud of witnesses described in Hebrews 11, he calls his listeners to run their race. And he says, you run it by throwing off hindrances, you run it by enduring, and you run it by looking to Jesus and the joy that comes with following Him. He says that you trust that the difficulty you're facing, this is really key, is not God abandoning you, but disciplining you and loving you. And he says, because of that, we move forward as a body into greater endurance in Him. Now, the question still remains, why does the discipline come in the midst of faithfulness? Why is God bringing this on them as they're trying to do the right thing? Scott is going to answer that in just a couple minutes, but we'll take a break now. I want to get to that question that, that Drew asked about why God would allow discipline in someone's life uh, in the midst of faithfulness. And, and so I want to get there. And we are going to, we're going to answer that, but it's going to take a little time, and I'm going to need to kind of build there. And so hopefully you'll, you'll pick up on, on what I'm doing. Um, uh, John Piper helped me see something that was pretty cool uh, recently, and <clears throat> it's this idea that sometimes in the Christian life, you hear pastors like myself, you hear leaders say things like that, that, that the Christian life is, is all about finding, finding peace in God, that in Christ we find peace and rest. In fact, Jesus says things like, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, right? And I'll give you rest. And in, we, we talk about the peace of Christ that comes. We talk about 
um, being, being made in right relationships. So now that we don't have to earn God's love, we don't have to try and be somebody we're not, that, that ultimately that we can find rest in God, that, that we can be re- restored and renewed and reconciled to Him. And, 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 and all this is, is true. Um, and so the other, the other side of the coin is sometimes other pastors like myself or leaders will say that the Christian life is about striving, that it's about wrestling, that it's about like, seeking after God with all your heart. It's about putting to death sinfulness and selfishness. It's about this, this wrestling and this striving, and, and yet both are true. So how, how, how are they both true? How, how, is this, how does this work together? Sometimes it seems like those two things could be opposing each other. And I think somewhere in this, in this understanding, in, in, in understanding how these two things can come together, how, how, how peace and rest fits together with, with striving and wrestling. Like, how do those two things fit? And I think that in this answer, in, in the integration of those two things, in, in, in those two things coming together, we, we, we can understand and get a, a greater glimpse of what the author is trying to do here in the book of Hebrews. Um, the author, I don't know if you, you've noticed, but the author has a pretty high, uh, mature perspective on, on pain and, and difficulty in the life of a believer. Right? So they're, they're writing, he's writing, she's writing, whoever's writing, um, to, most likely he, to, um, sorry ladies, a, a, a group of people, it's true, a group of people who are, right, looking to turn away from Jesus and, and experiencing persecution like you and I have never faced before, and... Um, aggressive attack on, on their life because of their faith in Jesus. And so they're tempted to turn for Him because it, life would be easier if they did. And, and you and I don't always identify with that. Most of the time don't hardly ever identify with that. And, and yet He has this high view of, of pain and difficulty that you persevere, that you endure, that you, you keep going, that you count it, you know, like Jesus, a joy to go through. And we're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. A lot of us, I would say, a lot of us in this room are not there. Like, we're not, we're not at that point where we're like, yeah, that's what the Christian life is. When we hear the witness, word witness, we don't think someone who's going to die for their faith. Like it was kind of originally. We think of someone who is, uh, maybe brings up Jesus once in a while in a conversation under their breath. You know, that, <laughs> like, that's how we think of witness. So we, don't, we, we don't generally in our church, in, in, in our culture, we don't have this high view of, of, of pain and difficulty in the life of a believer. We hear Jesus say that you're going to face, like, they're, they're going to kill me and they're going to come after you too. Like, you're going you're to face persecution. You're going you're gonna to face these things. And we go, oh yeah, sure, uh-huh, I know what that means. It means like I'm going to be made fun of for listening to Christian music when I'm in junior high. And I'm not sure that's all what Jesus is describing. And so, we, we have to kind of go, okay, what, what's going on here? So we come back to these, these two things, this, 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 the, the rest and the peace that we find in Jesus, and yet the wrestling and, and the striving that takes place. Because now this, this wrestling and striving takes place not because we're trying to earn God's favor, not because we're trying to um, become somebody you know, we're not, but ultimately 
it comes from a place of rest and peace. That we, that we've, we have been reconciled to our Father. That we, that we do have a relationship with God. And so therefore, we have nothing to fear. And yet, we fight the good fight. Right? I, Paul says things like, I strive toward the goal. I, 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 what does he say? I, um, you don't know what I, he's saying. Well, you know what I'm going to say. I know what I'm going to say. Uh, he, he says, I beat my body and I make it a slave so that, so that I may not, right? So he, he's describing this, this, this wrestling and this striving. What is he fighting against? And what is he striving for? And there, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot going on. And, and there's oftentimes more going on than we even realize. And so we come back to this question, why, why, does God, um, why does God discipline in the midst of faithfulness? We, when, you, when you guys think of discipline growing up, right? discipline equaled what? A belt. A belt, which is what? Huh? Punishment. What'd you say? Holy spankings. Well, the more holy the paddle is, the harder, the faster they can swing it. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, so discipline equals punishment for us a lot of times, and, and we have this view that that God is punishing. Why? Why would He punish in the midst of faithfulness? And and that's not what the text is describing it as. Like 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 Drew said, it's not. This isn't punishment. We have to. We have to. Um, see this as a loving father. And I recognize that, that uh, some of you have, have examples of that. Like I, I, remember, I remember my dad when I was 16 years old, 17 years old, I had um, borrowed the, my, my mom's Ford, 1986, Ford Thunderbird Coupe. Okay? Uh-huh. Called it the Thunder Chicken. It was, it was, that was my name, the Thunder Chicken. It was five-speed. It was all black, two-door. And I, and I borrowed, I borrowed it. Um, I went to a baseball game in a, in a local town, neighboring town, actually. And on my way back, we took the we took the long way, we took the side roads, the back roads, and and it was late. Like we had a doubleheader, and it was late anyway. We missed a turn, and all of a sudden we're driving. I don't know what we're doing, listening to music, and and then all of a sudden the radio cut out, and then the lights start flickering, and then the lights went out. And then the car died. And, and so we're, we're driving down this. All I remember is it was a, a dark country road. Still, it was paved, but, and it was downhill, and we just coasted for what seemed like forever. And, and the whole time we're going further and further away from town, which is way, way back this other way. And so back then we didn't have cell phones, right? We had to you know, dial up, call. No, we didn't, we didn't have dial up. We were beyond dial up. We were push button. It was very advanced. Um, anyway, so finally, like, a, a friend had to get out, see a neighbor, contact his parents, who, who were about 10 minutes away. That, that was the closest. And my family, my dad, was about 30 minutes away, and it was midnight by the time I called him, and, right, get him out of bed, come pick me up. And then he, I remember the drive home being really quiet. Um, I remember him coming in at 6 a.m. in the morning, waking me up. And we go to look for this car. We had to drive back another 30, 30 40 uh, miles or so. And it wasn't there. Uh, like we pull up around the corner, and I'm like, I left it right there. It's not there. Uh, I swear it was right here. It's right here. 
and we had to turn around and go back to town. We had to, and basically, because I had parked it with my tire right on the white line, they had to tow it. And so they called it, and it was impounded. I had to go. So I had to pay for all of this. Um, I think my dad paid for the, the alternator belt, which was the only thing that he paid for, which was like five bucks. And I paid for everything else. And, and I remember thinking this. I remember thinking, yeah, I should pay for this. This is, this is on me. Like, I should... And, and I should have had to get up at 6, even though I hated it at the time. And I can look back now and go, yeah, I'm glad my dad was teaching me responsibility. I'm glad my dad was teaching me. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't shielding me from the inconvenience that it caused him. He was helping me see the cost of my decisions was happening, that, that I had had on, you know, that caused him and the inconvenience that it had him, the cost it. And, and I'm glad for that. And some of you have examples of, of parents who disciplined you and it was for your good. And others of you maybe wish you had parents that, that was a little more hard on you and didn't let you get away with everything because you recognize that doesn't help you. And, and, and yet, so when we, when we can step back and go, yeah, my, I, it felt like punishment for my dad coming and banging on the door at 6 a.m., but, but in reality it was, it was discipline, it was love. And he was teaching me something. And so we've got to recognize the difference between the two. But we'll get into why, why he was, why the discipline? Why is God disciplining in the midst of faithfulness? And so I want to talk about um, this, this, a couple of things dealing with the, the difficulty that the, the people in Hebrews faced. One of which we have to get out of the way, and then I want to spend the rest of the time unpacking the first one. The first thing I want to get out, get out of the way is we have to recognize a different kind of difficulty that they're facing versus what we're facing. They're, they're facing an intentional, aggressive right, persecution. Ours is different. Ours is oftentimes it's circ- circumstantial difficulty. right? Um, sometimes it's, it's difficulty because of the choices you made. Sometimes it's difficulty because of the choices someone else has made in your life. Sometimes it's w- what you're facing is the temptation to um, passively drift away from what you know God wants you to do and how easy it is to get caught up in, in the things of this world and, and to get caught up in chasing after the things that others are chasing after. And, and there, you, you've experienced this passive drift and, and sometimes the Lord's discipline comes in the midst of that. But it's a little different. It's quite a bit different than what they were facing. The, the second thing is this. And this is what I want to spend the rest of the time unpacking. Um, is that God is at work in this difficulty. God is at work in our pain, no matter what it is. Um, because He's doing something. He's doing something in us, and He's doing something through us. And what is that? What is He up to? What is He, what is he doing? And so this is, this is a statement I want to say that I, that I want to kind of talk more about. I, I really want to just, if, if you could grasp anything if you could be open to anything this, tonight and, and, and walking away from here, it would be this. That I believe, I believe God is more present and active in your life than you, um, than you probably realize and possibly different than you think. That He's more, he's more active and present in your life than you realize and, and possibly different than you think. So I believe God is calling us to... Um, to have more 
and more of an awareness of Him, of His presence, of His activity, of what He's doing. And, and so I want to talk about these two, you might call them phases of awareness. Um, the first one is this, an awakened awareness. Okay? So I want to talk about an awakened awareness to God's presence and His activity in your life. Think, the word awareness is kind of interesting. Think about how you become aware of something. I remember, I remember becoming aware of, for the first time, my own body odor. You guys remember that moment? Maybe your mom had been telling you for weeks or months that you need to put deodorant on. And you're like, Mom, that's weird, that's weird. And all of a sudden you're at school, you're with your friends and you smell something. And you go, oh, that's me. And if I can smell it, they can. And all of a sudden it's like. And then you're like, oh, Mom, I'm all about the deodorant right now. And then you, and you cake it on. And then, anyway, so I remember that moment. I remember the moment when my mom was, she'd always get, try to get me to brush my teeth every morning. Before, and I'm like, Mom, I, I brushed my teeth last night. I haven't eaten anything. Okay, so why do I got to brush it the first thing in the morning? And, and, I, and then I was over at a friend's house, and he was brushing his teeth before we were going. So I'm like, dude, what are you doing? We haven't, he's like, my breath. I'm like, oh, that's why people brush their teeth. Okay. All right. So I get it now. You know, so then, then I became aware of things, right? So I don't, you guys remember this? You guys remember these, these moments of like awakened awareness? Maybe, maybe the, the first time you were attracted to somebody, right? Maybe, maybe when you, uh, you started recognizing what you were wearing and, and the, you know, the jeans were a little high and you thought, that, this ain't going to fly or whatever it is. Um, you, you know, like there's this, there's this aha moment where... All of a sudden, you begin to see what's really going on. So think about those moments in your life, this kind of awakened awareness, right? You, a lot of them in junior high, um, in high school, you start to, you start to see um, what's really going on in people's lives. Some of you have had pretty, pretty um, sad, maybe, moments of awareness of what's going on in your parents' world, that they're sinful and broken people, and you, you thought they were hung the moon, you know, thought they were perfect, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, wow, the parents are kind of messed up too, you know. That, that, those are awakened moments of awareness. And, and the, Jesus tells a story in Luke 15 about, about a prodigal son who has this moment. He, he was wealthy. He had, you know, taken his half of the inheritance, and he'd wastes it on wild living, it says, and then, and then a drought happened, something that was out of his control. And he finds himself sitting in a pile or a, a, a pigsty, wanting to eat what they were eating, realizing they were living better than him. And then he had this, it says he came, he says he, it came to his, sense, his senses. He came to his senses and he realized his servants actually were living better than, his servants at his dad's house were living better than he was. And, and he had this moment of repentance where he confessed his sin before God and he confessed his sin to his dad. And this, this awakened Awareness. Think about it. It's just interesting. Um, the moments where, where God has made Himself real to you, where you've you've had moments that wow, God is is real, and something's happening, and 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 I'm not here just by chance, and and I'm not here at the table tonight just for just because I 
had nothing to do. Like there's a reason why these things are happening, and there is an awareness. Um, the pain and the difficulty in our life when we see these things with with an awakened awareness to God's presence and act, and and His and His activity in our life, um, they become something that God is using. And I remember I remember having this moment when I was 19 years old. I remember having this moment when I was about five years into marriage, when I realized that my wife wasn't trying to point out all my flaws. That wasn't her goal. I thought she was. I, I thought she was constantly trying to just point out why I sucked as a husband. Come to find out, she wasn't actually doing any of that. Just being in relationship with her, just being seeing her at her worst and her seeing me at my worst forced surfaced things that I didn't know were there. And I, I, I blamed it on her. In reality, is she was just a mirror reflecting what God was trying to do in me. And I, remember, I read this book called Sacred Marriage. And, and it was paradigm shifting for me. It was where I realized, wow, God has put this person in my life to help, to help in this process that He's doing in my life. And what is that process? Yeah. Sanctification, this, this process of being made holy, that, that, that marriage wasn't meant for my happiness as much as it was for my own holiness. That God was using um, my wife, He was using my work, that He was using our daughter at the time, that He was using difficult circumstances and relationships and big questions that I had and things that weren't answered for me. All of it, all of it He was using. It was paradigm shifting for me. It was an awakened awareness to the presence and the activity of God in my life. And I don't know where you are, but I know that I would assume that some of you have had this kind of awareness and you're seeking after that. And others of you may not, but, but I want to challenge you to, to become, to open yourself up to, to recognize that God is present and active in your life. Um, Here's the answer to the question. It's actually found in our text, but we'll start in Romans 8, 28 and 29. Um, we'll read that and then we'll come back to Hebrews 12. Here's the answer to why God... why God is allowing, is, is disciplining in the midst of faithfulness. This, is, this verse can be often misconstrued understood, taken out of context, and um, it's, it's Romans eight twenty eight and 29, it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, he goes on to explain, that this is where we, we love this verse, we love to think that everything that happens in life, it's going to work out, just work out for our good, and we love that, like we love that, and and in the next verse, he's going to explain what the good is. And the good isn't what we typically always think it is. It's, it isn't health and, and wealth and happiness. It's something else. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to conform, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There it is. Turn back to Romans 12. And we'll see it in our text here as well. Romans 12, verse, verses 10 and 11. Mm 
says, it says, for they disciplined us, they meaning earthly fathers. He's using that analogy as a, as a you know, if, if then, if they do it, then how much more is God kind of a thing. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So do you see in those verses this rest and peace and this wrestling and striving, working together in unison? He, he, he gives us the answer that, that it's, it's holiness. The reason, the reason this discipline comes in the midst of faithfulness is because He's working out something in them. He's helping them become more like Christ. Here's how, here's how Romans 8 and, and, and Hebrews 12 fit together. Um, to be conformed into the image of Christ is the same, is the same process called sanctification. It's, it's a Bible word. It's a big word, but sanctification... Sanctification literally means to be made holy, is, 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 to, is to be set apart. So, and holiness is this process of being set apart for God. Okay? So, we're being conformed into, this, into His image. We're being made holy in this process. And, and to be made holy is to be set apart for God and His purposes. Just like the Israelites. The Israelites, God said, okay, I pick you people. I pick you, Abraham, and you're going to make a nation, and then, and then it's about, most of the Old Testament is about the, the people of Israel, that God's covenant with them um, that ultimately is, is fulfilled, and the author of Hebrews says this over and over and over, fulfilled in Jesus. But he says to these people, you are my people, and you are holy. I am yours and you are mine. And because of our covenant, you must stay in relationship. When they stayed in relationship with him, they were set apart for him, for his purposes. And that's why he was he was um, militant about them not giving themselves away to others. He was very serious about them being His people because of His plan to bring Jesus into the world, to bring restoration, and to fulfill ultimately His promise to Abraham. And so they were His people, set apart for Him. And you and I are that same group of people. We are set apart for Him. We are made holy for Him. And that's what He is, that's what He's doing. So, here's, here's a question I would ask you and then we'll, we'll move on to this next, next type of, the next phase of awareness is how, how aware are you of God's activity in your life? Of, of His presence in your life and His activity in your life? Like how aware of you? If you maybe if you were to give it a number, scale of 1 to 10, 1 being not at all, ten being more than I've ever been. How, how, how aware are you right now? And what is stopping you from being aware of His presence and activity? Here's a second one. Um, not only do we need to be awakened to an awareness of God's presence and activity, but I think what happens from that point on is there needs to be um, active awareness to God's presence and activity. 
not just being awakened to it, not just realizing, wow, God is close and He's active, but going, wow, I'm, I'm called to wrestle and strive. I'm called to seek after. I'm called to be active in my awareness of His presence and activity. So how does, how does someone become aware of something? How do you become more aware of something? And especially God. How do you become more aware? Is it even up to us to become more aware of God and His presence and activity? How does someone wrestle and strive, wrestle and strive like the Bible describes from a place of rest and peace? So think about this in your own life. Um, some of you are junior, seniors, maybe graduate students. Think about when you first started your program, whatever it is. How did you become more aware of what was really going on in that particular field? What are some things that, what are some things that, that you did to become more aware of nutrition or engineering or statistics or whatever? How do you become more aware of what's, like, what's really going on in this area? What, what do you do? What are some things that happen? Research. What's that? Research. Research. I can't hear you, Chloe. You're so quiet. Pray. pray. <laughs> you, you prayed to become more aware? Of... No, no, no. no. So what else? So you researched. We'll get there. Research. What else? Huh? Yeah, you have mentors. You have, you, have, you have people in your department who are guiding you, directing you. What else? Experience. Labs. Field, field work. What else? Serving. Okay. We're in school mode. We're not in, ch- we're not in church mode yet. Hang on. We're in sc- school. Like, how do you become more aware of... I did. Everyone else. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. I'll get there. We'll get there. Con- okay. Conferences, going, going away, hearing, hearing speakers, hearing experts, um, right? So, all, but think about it. We often think, oh man, how do, how do I become more aware of God and His presence in my life? I don't know how to do that. It's so difficult. Yet, some of you are graduating. And you figured out how to be more aware of the reality of the field that you're entering into. You're, you're going to get a degree from, from Oklahoma State. And you're going to get a job in whatever field you get a job in because of your experience, because of your, your grade, because of your, your work and research and all of that. And, and, and we sometimes have a difficult time translating that into a relationship with God. God is similar in this. How do we become more aware of God and His activity in our life? And Chloe, you pray, you serve, you read the Bible, you know? Yeah, totally. I love how you put that together. It's great. Yeah, you sing a song. Yeah, it's great. No, 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 please don't. Um, no, no, no. no just, you're good. You're, you take, take a nap. It's okay. Uh, so, so, okay, so this is where I want to get practical. 
um, th this is this is this is something I I am this is something I'm passionate about because well because of what I've experienced in my own life. I think that we don't know what to do to become more aware of God's presence and activity because we don't know what kind of tools are out there. Like Oklahoma State provides all kinds of tools for you to become great in what you're studying to become, and and we think well. Gosh, I guess I gotta just study the Bible or memorize the Bible. That's my only tool, and pray and serve. Um, and those are all true. Actually, those are. So, so I want to talk about spiritual disciplines. So, when when you hear the word spiritual disciplines, and we've been talking about discipline of the Lord, I want you to see they're related, but they're different. The kind of di the kind of discipline that, that Hebrews twelve is talking about is. These, these difficult times that God is using to bring forth holiness in them. And, and, and what does he say? Righteousness and training them in something. And yet the kind of discipline that I want to talk about is spiritual disciplines or things that you do. Here's my definition for spiritual disciplines. They are, uh, we'll, 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 we'll say this, spiritual disciplines are tools that God has given us that only we can use to accomplish the work in us that only He can do. So, spiritual disciplines. Let me read again. I want to explain this word tools because I think this is a great, this is a really great analogy. Spiritual disciplines are tools that God has given us that only we can use. We, meaning like only I can do this. He can't do this for me. Only I can use the tool He's given me to accomplish the work in us that only He can do. So there are tools that, that God gives us to do that only, that, that only we can use to accomplish the work in us that only He can do. So what do I mean by tools? So, this might, this might be lost on half of you, I don't know. I'm not much of a fix-it guy, okay? It's just the reality. See, Anthony, me and you are the same. I, when, when something's broken, are you a fix-it guy? Are you a handy guy? Okay, okay, I didn't think so. I, I'm sorry, but I judged you, I assumed you weren't, and I was right, but still. Uh, but I'm not either, okay? So when, I, when something's broken in my house, my first instinct is like, oh, wow, I can't wait to like, get into that and get dirty and figure out how to fix it. And I'm like, how much do they cost? And does, does Amazon ship for free? That's what I want to know. That's my first thought. They, they don't ship bathtubs? What? Oh, man, i got to go figure out how. So... So that's not my first instinct, but my dad is a great man, and he has given me tools over the years, tools that he knows I will need, and, and tools that I've eventually, like, wow, I have this. This is cool. That's what this does. This is awesome. This is great. Like, I have this thing that, and, and, and what's hit me is, like, if I have all these tools in my garage, and I never figure out what they're for and how to use them, then when I, when I come across a problem, I won't know that I have a tool that can fix it. Like if I don't know what a screwdriver does, if I don't know what a, uh, an air compressor does, if I don't know what these things do, then what good are they sitting in my garage? I, I need to know how they work in order to know how to use them. And, and spiritual disciplines are, are a lot the same way. And so I want to give out a list of, so I'm just going to, this is, we're getting real practical here. But this is, um, I've, I've put together two lists 
Actually, take take a few more. That should be enough for you guys. Actually, I need one of those. I always do that. Thank you. So, so remember, here's what we're after. We're trying to figure out how does how does a person become um, actively aware of what God is doing in their life. How does a person start to actively pursue God's presence and His activity in our life so we, so we can hear from Him and respond to Him? So we can turn to Him and say, okay, God, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I, I see what you're doing and, I'm, and I want to surrender. I'm, I'm, I want to walk in you. So I'm not, I'm not going like, to spend a whole lot of time on all of these. This is really for you to read later. Um, but... These are just a few. So, so what you have are classic disciplines on one side, okay, where it says spiritual disciplines. Right? There's a definition there that's a little different than what I gave you, but it's similar. Spiritual disciplines, so there's, there's some classic ones. When I say classic disciplines, these are ones that are in the Bible. Um, these are also ones that throughout church history, that the church has has looked to um, as, as ways of engaging in and actively being aware of God's presence and activity in their life. And so, you see this list. There, there's, and I kind of took this format from a guy named Richard Foster who wrote a book called Spirit, um, Celebration of Disciplines. It's kind of a classic book. If you're really interested in learning more about spiritual disciplines, that would be a good book to start with. Um, Celebration of Discipline by, by Richard Foster, but he has this format, inward disciplines, outward disciplines, corporate disciplines. And again, the purpose of these is, these are tools that God's given us that we can, okay God, here's a tool you've given me to use for your purposes. So prayer and study and meditation and fasting, these all have, these all have purposes. Um, there was a time in my life when I was—I recognized that I was just kind of—I um, was feeling real blech with God. Okay, technical term. Um, just real complacent in my relationship with God. Just nothing really going on. And and a friend of mine had challenged me. Actually, I think our church was talking about fasting, and we were talking about fasting in in our staff meeting and. I just realized, man, it had been a long time since I had done a fast. Okay, I don't know if you guys have experience with this or not, um, but a, a fast is something for me that always just, get, God gets my attention uh, because I love to eat. And, and, and so I did this fast, and I, I, I noticed, started noticing something. Like, my natural tendency was just to eat whatever I wanted, or just, I, I didn't have any sort of, no, I, I don't think I should do that, or I don't think I should eat that because that's not good for me. I just, if it was in front of me, I ate it. If it was on TV, I watched it. If it was whatever, I did it. I just didn't have any sort of, and I noticed that what this fast was doing was helping me go, no, 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 I, I don't actually need um, those things. And, and when I just give in to those things, I just lazily just do those things, something, there's this complacency that's taking place. I'm just feeding my flesh and I'm not, I'm not growing in the Lord. I'm not surrendering. I'm not relying on Him. And so, it, so it, it's a tool that God has given me to, 
that, that only I can, can use uh, so, so that he can accomplish what only he can do. So uh, outward disciplines, um, corporate disciplines. So on the, on the other side, I have what I like to talk, this is just an example of, um, even, though, even though the discipline of solitude and, and silence, those are more classical disciplines, but there's a way, I, I like to think of some of these application as spontaneous disciplines. And, and these are things that, that, that are more of things that God calls me to do in my, in I, in my particular context. So several months ago in church, I shared this example of, of how I remember when I first moved here and I started, started we moved across the country from California. I had a family, three kids. Started a new, I had never done college ministry before, so I had a lot to figure out there. I started a master's program. We bought a house all within like a month of each other. And it was a lot of major things happening. I, again, we moved, started a new job, bought a new house, and I started seminary. And, and so I was maxed out. Every hour of my day was spent doing something, and I had some, always something else on my mind. And, and I just, every, every appointment I was going to, I always felt like I was five minutes late. So I found myself speeding across town to get somewhere, to meet somebody, to, and then I had to get back to, to, to finish everything so I could get home to not neglect my family. And, and, and I just, there was this constant, you guys ever feel rushed? You ever feel like you're always in a hurry? You ever feel like there's just this mounting pressure building? And, and so I was actually taking a class on spiritual disciplines. And one of the weeks we had to spend a whole week um, practicing the discipline of slowing. And I'm like, oh, great. I don't have time to practice the discipline of slowing down. I've got too much to do, people. So, but, it, but the class was on on spiritual disciplines, and so I was, for an assignment, starting to think about ways that I could slow, and, and so some of these ideas came from that, but I remember one of the things I did was, I purposely drove one mile an hour under the speed limit, I know, it's crazy, crazy, live it on the edge, people, um, but one, try it, try it for one week, <laughs> sequence is like, Nah, no thanks, I ain't doing that. Um, try, try driving one mile an hour under the speed limit for a week. And just see what happens. Here's, here's what happened for me. I noticed that I noticed a lot of things, actually, that I'd never seen, I hadn't seen before. Because I was always in a hurry, and I was always looking in my mirror for a cop. That, that's basically it. I was driving as fast as I can, looking for cops. That's, that's, that was my f- form of driving. And, and, this, and God was... And God was helping me go, wow, when I drive, I don't have to worry about cops. That's cool. Um, and, and because of that, I can actually start noticing things that are going on around me. Like, oh, that, I've never really seen that. That's really cool. Or, wow, that tree is beautiful. Or whatever. Um, th- th- all these things started happening. So, and I, and I, there was this, it was like God was breathing life into me again. And, and, it, and it just happened from this this, this practice of, of slowness. So, classic disciplines, spiritual or spontaneous disciplines, things that God prompts you to do in your current context, in your current season, whatever it is. But all of them, if, 
if you're not aware of the kind of tools that are available, the kind of things that God's given you to, to be able to connect with Him and to become aware of His presence and activity, you, you'll miss it. You'll miss Him. And, it's, and, and so, studying the Bible and meditating on it, memorizing it, and, and prayer, all those things are... But there's a, there's a whole bunch of others too. And so, um, I, I want to challenge you. What is, a, what, is, what is one of these disciplines? What is something that... Maybe you're already doing one. Maybe you've just started a Bible reading plan and, you, and you're really committed to that and you're, you're growing in that discipline. That's awesome. Um, but if you don't have one, what, what is something that maybe God's prompting you to do to, to, to be actively aware of His presence and activity in your life? Because here's, here's what I believe. And we'll close with this. I, I believe that when, that when we become more aware of God's presence and His activity in our life, we, we come to know Him more. Okay? And, and I believe to know Him is to love Him. And to love Him is to trust Him. And to trust Him is to obey Him. And as we obey Him, we see how good He is. And we fall in love with Him all over. And then we trust Him more. And we obey Him more. And we know Him more. What's, what do you want? Okay. Um, I believe... I'll just say it the way I said it. I believe the more we become aware of God's presence and activity, the more we come to know who God is. And the more we know Him, the more we love Him. And the more we love Him, the more we trust Him. And the more we trust Him, the more we obey Him. And so, and when we, when we live a life of obedience to God, we fall in love with Him all over again. We, we come to know Him better. We, if we fall in love with Him and we trust Him and we, and we want to obey Him. And I, I believe this is the way God set it up. And I think it, I think it starts with, um, one, being awakened to God's presence and His activity in your life. And two, playing an active role in His, His presence and His activity. Let me pray. Father, I, I, I'm thankful for your patience in my life. And thankful for the awareness that you've given me. Um, just the moments that you have reached down through the heavens. And however you do that, you've broke through into my world, into my life. You've got my attention. I know that's your grace. I know I couldn't have ever manipulated some of the things I've experienced from you. That, that there's no way for me to explain it other than you. And I thank you for those things. I thank you for, I thank you for your discipline in the midst of, of faithfulness. I thank you for the hardships that I've been through that have molded me and shaped me into into your image. I thank you for the transformation that's taken place in my life that I can look back and see how you've been at work. Um, and I pray, God, that, that we would just become more and more aware of what you are doing and how close you are. And that would lead us to take an active role in, 
in the things that you've called us to do. And, and uh, I pray that, 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 that steps will be taken, steps of obedience from you, um, to, to be more active in, 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 in aware of your presence and your activity because, God, you are good and you love us and you have a purpose and a plan for us and you've, um, you've got this figured out. God, help us to seek you for it. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A um, couple things I forgot to mention is the workday. So this Saturday at Sunnybrook um, from 8 to noon is, is our kind of once a year we have a big workday and where people from the church can show up from 8 to noon. There's going to be donuts. But basically you show up, you get partnered with whoever you want, maybe some friends, maybe some families from the church. You get to know people. It's a great time. There's going to be lots to do. We'd love to have your help. Uh, so I will be there. My family will be there from 8 to noon on Saturday. And the other th- couple things are, next week is bring your favorite ice cream night. Okay? And so, well, that's a good question. We will have, no, don't bring gallons. Bring, bring pints. Oh, you can bring that too. You can bring half pint. You can bring whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you can show up anytime between eight and noon on Saturday. Yep. If you show up at eleven thirty, it'll be kind of like ah, thanks for coming. Just like a blister. Um, so, so yes. Don't don't bring a gallon of ice cream. So next week, bring your favorite ice cream and what else, Drew? Oh yeah. Next Thursday night, because it's Jesus Week, and, and we're, we're going to be really, uh, hopefully, more people on campus would be interested in coming to, to different ministries. Um, we're we're going to have, and because it's a, night, a couple nights before Easter, or a few nights before Easter, we're going to have more of an apologetic night, um, proof of the, of the resurrection and, and crucifixion. And so if you, it'd be a great night to invite friends. We're really going to... Um, kind of have it in a way to, to present some real answers and to some real questions. So that's, that's next week. Other than that, stick around. We'd love for you to hang out.